All right, John 19. It'll be in verse 16 is where we're going to be at. It'll be on the screen, or you can read it with your Bible, your phone. You can also just listen in and have it read over you. Here we go. Then they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went out to what is called Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth. For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says, they will look at the one they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. They took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloth with the fragrant spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation 
and since the tomb was nearby. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and thank you, Randy. Uh, Happy Palm Sunday to each of you and your households. Hope you celebrated well this weekend. Um, We are not in a Palm Sunday text. Please forgive us. Actually, we blame John for putting it so early in his gospel. Um, We are in John 19 as we work through the text of John and as we try to land on Easter next week. Um, This Good Friday, though, we do want to invite you here. We'll be having a little bit of a different kind of Good Friday service. We will be watching the Passion of the Christ here in the sanctuary. And then with, if you've got young kids who maybe aren't ready for the Passion of the Christ, um, you can come to the gymnasium and we're going to be watching a kid-friendly right now media version of the life and the death crucifixion of Jesus. We'd love to have you there to join us this Friday um, here. Uh, But today we are in John 19, and uh, if you don't have your Bibles open, I would encourage you to open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, those orange and white beauties in front of you, those are yours. You don't have a Bible of your own, that is our gift to you. Uh, That is the very word of God, which is able to save your soul, so take one home. Um, We're going to be jumping around John 19 uh, through the end of the chapter. We're going to be looking at some things in the Old Testament and the New. Because the cross is, I don't know if you know this, I don't know if you know this, but this was free. The cross is a big deal in the Bible. Just that one's for you to have, put it in your pocket, save for later. The Bible's a pretty big deal and the cross is a really big deal in that Bible. So um, pay attention to the cross, it seems to say. But as I've studied this text, I've thought a lot about why the cross. Uh, I, I haven't come up with a great answer. I needed some help to come up with that answer. But why the cross? Why the specific form of death that Jesus chose? It's surely not just so that we can have nice artistry or cool tats or nice jewelry. Why the cross? It's got to be more than just the pain of the cross. John doesn't really deal a lot with the physical pain of the cross. It was surely painful. The Romans were sadistic. They invented ways of making you hurt and hurt and hurt until you died of not being able to breathe any longer. Jesus died quickly. Many didn't die so quickly. Sometimes it took days for them to actually pass. Maybe it's the pain that Jesus chose the cross because he's dying for the sins of humanity, so he wanted to experience the full pain for humanity. He was willing to bear the cup of God's full wrath. Maybe it's just the pain. Or maybe the humiliation. Because the Romans weren't just trying to kill whoever it was they were crucifying. They were doing something more. They were trying to humiliate and shame. They were just trying to kill him. This was a pretty inefficient way to do it. They had easier ways to kill somebody. No, this crucifixion was to humiliate, to shame. And not just the person that was on the cross, but anyone associated with that person on the cross. That person on the cross represented disorder. And Rome really, really liked order. They really liked you falling in line with them and whoever it is was in control at the time. They didn't like revolutionaries. They didn't like people who were disrupting the peace. They didn't like people who claimed to be rival kings. 
And so if your king or somebody you were following got captured, that was a sign like, hey, this is gonna happen to you if you don't turn away. Maybe Jesus chose the cross for the humiliation that he would experience. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about why that happens because as we're gonna see in this text, as you've already heard in this text, John isn't too concerned with how Jesus was crucified. John seems to be more concerned with why, with the purpose of the crucifixion, what, what the things surrounding this moment mean because as we learned, the cross is a big deal in the Bible. And John beautifully weaves together so many different themes from the Old Testament, from his book, to try to culminate in this moment here, the, the cross of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. And as we read through the cross of Jesus, this crucifixion account, it doesn't surprise us, shouldn't surprise us that it's found in each of the gospel narratives of the life of Jesus. This, the cross is a big deal. But in these narratives, we see a lot of similarities and differences. John, as we've looked in these 19 chapters so far, has a lot of differences from the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But one of the things John loves to do is to trace themes that he picked up from the Old Testament and drawing them through his letter in beautiful ways, themes of light and darkness, of day and night, themes of life and death, themes of Old Testament beauty where he claims things that no person they thought could claim, where he is the I am, where he is doing these great signs all throughout the letter. And Jesus is portrayed as a particular son of God, that he's a Messiah that's more unique than maybe at first glance you might realize. And so let's look at some of these interesting details. This is a helpful exercise anytime you're going through the scriptures to see how the other scriptures are helping us uh, understand this text and how um, these might compare to other repetitions of the text, uh, of the narratives. Um, the first thing that I find really interesting comes in the very beginning. And when it says, carrying the cross by himself. You Bible scholars will remember that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's someone else that's carrying the cross for Jesus, this guy named Simon of Cyrene who was coming in and Jesus was going out just like anyone who was crucified had to carry the horizontal beam of the cross from the place they were condemned to the place they were going to die. And many times their strength would give out and the Romans would force somebody else to help them out. Uh, the simple explanation of this is probably the right one. This isn't two competing ideas and therefore we can't trust the gospel accounts. No, actually, Jesus was carrying the cross by himself and then at some point he lost strength to be able to carry that huge, heavy wooden beam and someone else helped him later. But John doesn't include that detail and I think he does it intentionally because what John loves to do is show that there's more going on than what it first seems. And the reason I think John doesn't include the detail about Simon and says that Jesus is the one carrying the cross is to emphasize the obedience of Jesus with his work on the cross. Philippians 2 is a, a beautiful, beautiful passage um, starting in verse six. And it talks about what it was that Jesus was doing through his work on the cross. It says this, Jesus was existing in the form of God, but he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, 
taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus himself is exalted by the Father because of this act. One of the reasons I think Jesus is highlighted as the one carrying this cross is to show his obedience to the cross, to the will of the Father. Jesus is the one who's in control of this whole scene. Drew talked about it last week. He's the one in authority. It's his authority to lay down his life. It's his authority to take it up again. Pilate has no authority except that authority which has been given to him by God. And so what Jesus is doing is showing that he's in control as he is willingly submissive to the authority of God, to the sovereignty of God's plan in this. This is beautiful. This is interesting. It's interesting as we move on um, that we see these um, titles given to Jesus where it's written in three different languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Why did he write that? Why does John make that detail? I don't know if you remember in chapter 11, but Caiaphas is being used by God and I think John in the narrative as a unwilling, unwitting prophet. Caiaphas says, it's better that one person would die for the nation than for the nation to die, for for us to lose our place. He's not trying to say something theological about Jesus, but John uses it nonetheless that Jesus was in fact going to pay for the sins of the world, of the nation, even though Caiaphas didn't know that's what he was saying. I think God's using and John's highlighting something similar here. The Jews don't like that Pilate wrote this. They said, please don't write that. Please write that he's claiming this. We don't want people to think this is actually our Messiah because that would make us weak. That would make us pathetic. And Pilate says, yeah, that's the point. What I have written, I have written. This is your king. This is the one you said you have no king but Caesar. This is the one you said you wanted to to kill. You're the one that led to this. You tried to manipulate me. Okay, fine. You don't get any other help here. This is Jesus, your king, and I'm killing him because we are Rome and rival kings get killed here. But God, John, is using different purposes here. He says Jesus king of the Jews because that's actually what he is but he's not just the king of the Jews he's the king of everyone who speaks Latin and he's the king of everyone who speaks Aramaic and he's the king of everyone who speaks Greek and English and Hebrew and and whatever language it is that is your mother tongue you you speak a language he is your king Pilate didn't know it but God John was was using him as a prophet and we find interesting there uh, in verse 24 after the uh, Roman soldiers start to divide up Jesus' belongings, because again, they're trying to shame him, and one of the main ways they would shame him is strip him naked, completely naked. And, and all his belongings got to be divided up as a fringe benefit for the Roman soldiers who were doing the crucifixion. And they divided up four pieces of clothing, and there was one more piece of clothing, which was this tunic, this this piece that would be closest to your skin that was unique from other tunics. It was the seamless one piece tunic and it apparently was special. Why why does John include that detail when others don't? I don't know. I've got guesses. Uh, My best guess is that it's trying to portray the unity that Jesus was bringing. If you think back to some of the stories in the Old Testament where robes or cloaks are ripped, a lot of times it's connections with kingdoms being ripped out of the hands of bad leaders. Samuel goes to Saul. Saul 
rips Samuel's cloak and Samuel turns back to Saul and says, just as you've ripped my clothes, so the kingdom is being ripped from you. Not much later, um, the kingdom is about to be divided between 12 and 2. And the same kind of an illustration is used. Pieces of clothing representing the different tribes which are about to be divided because of bad leaders, because of unfaithfulness, because of idolatry. Maybe John's trying to get us to think of those things. Maybe he's trying to think, get us to think of Jesus as the priest. Josephus in his Antiquities says that a lot of times the priest would have these robes, which were outer garments, that were these one-piece, seamless, beautiful pieces of clothing. Maybe he's trying to say Jesus is this great, true high priest, both the one who makes the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself, like the writer of Hebrews says. It might be a stretch, I don't know, but hopefully our minds are being jogged as we read through these stories, these interesting details coming to the text with curiosity. But what we do know from this text is in verse 24 that scripture is fulfilled through the things that are happening. Verse 24, so they said to one another, the soldiers, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened that scripture might be fulfilled, which is so strange. It's a strange detail for John to include. And this is the scripture that's fulfilled. They divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. That is what the soldiers did. And if you look in the notes of your Bible, it probably says that this is a quote of Psalm 22. Psalm 22, which actually some of the other gospel writers record Jesus using things from Psalm 22 as well. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a psalm that shows this suffering one who's being encompassed by evildoers. The suffering one who becomes thirsty. The suffering one who is actually continuing to trust God the whole way through. I think John uses this to show that Jesus is one who suffers, that he suffers well, that he's a suffering king. And then the next section of the passage shows this weird conversation between Jesus, Mary, and who we think is probably John, the writer of this book. Um, Jesus, hanging there on the cross, looks to Mary and says, woman, behold your son. Then looks to the one he loves, son, behold your mother. The reason I find that interesting is because Mary had people closer to her who should have taken care of her. We believe she was a widow. We believe that Jesus had other half-brothers, different dad, um, and that they should have been the ones to take care of him. But some say the reason they weren't there is because they didn't actually believe what Jesus was doing was legit. They weren't in support, so they weren't there. Uh, what maybe Jesus is doing here, what maybe John is trying to highlight is what a major theme through the Gospels that he's making a new kind of family. That family isn't just about blood. That family is actually about allegiance to him. Who is my mother? Who is my father? Who are my siblings? It is those who do the will of my father in heaven. I have come and I will divide families. So what is the new family? Those who put their faith in him. Behold your son. Behold your mother. And we find interesting pieces in the next section. Verse 28, after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. 
Surely he was physically thirsty, but again, John's probably hearkening us back to that Psalm 22, this suffering king. And a jar of full of sour wine was sitting there, and so they fixed the sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch. A weird thing to use, and another weird detail that the other gospel writers don't include. A hyssop branch was kind of a weak branch. It wasn't necessarily a great tool for doing things like lifting a wet sponge. Why would he include that? Well, very well may have been a hyssop branch they used to reach just a little higher than their head uh, to reach Jesus' mouth. But a hyssop branch, if, if your Old Testament brain is firing right now, is a symbol of cleansing throughout the Old Testament. Oftentimes in connection with blood. But this hyssop branch that's being mentioned by John is trying to hint at something that was being hinted at since the very first chapter. John the baptizer looks at Jesus coming and says, behold, the Lamb of God coming to take away the sins of the world. The hyssop branch, full of sponge of sour wine. And then verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What was finished? Because it surely wasn't like all his work. He still needed to like resurrect from the dead, teach the disciples how to understand the Bible. Uh, he needed to ascend back to the right hand of God, needed to rule the universe for a while, still needs to return, judge the living and the dead, still needs to finish that whole project of making all things new. Okay, so it's, the whole job isn't done. What's finished? Well, what was finished was what his father had given him to do at that time. Jesus, this submissive son, had done all that the father needed him to do before his hour came. You, you remember throughout the story, there are different times when it says, my hour has not yet come, my time is not yet fulfilled. But then here in 12 and 13, which is this final week of Jesus, everything switches. My time has now come. The hour is now here. This is the time that they've been looking ahead to. It's now fulfilled. The work, the atoning work that I've come to do, it is now finished. It is finished. Now, through me, through this work, people can be declared righteous. Their sins can be paid for and atoned for. And then starting in verse 31. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a special day. This is an interesting text as well. Um, it brings us back to Deuteronomy chapter 21. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, um, Moses is giving instructions for what to do with a rebellious son. He says this in verse 22. If anyone is found guilty of an offense deserving of death and is executed and you hang his body on a tree, you are not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but are to bury him that day. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. Hmm. That's interesting. That Jesus being hung on a tree would be seen as a curse. It's almost like he was becoming a curse to set the accursed free from their curse. Like John's trying to remind us of something, to have us look back at something, 
that there's something more going on than them just wanting to get Jesus off the cross. The other thing that this reminds us of, that this text reminds us of, is that we see starting in verse um, 32. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man of, and then of the second. And then in verse 33, when they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs. Weird detail. Why did they not break his legs? Since so they saw that he was already dead. So we already said that during the crucifixion, a lot of times they would stay alive for a long time. The Romans were really good at getting you to suffer. And they would have to push up and breathe and then sink back down. A lot of pain involved in that movement. And a lot of them would, would last for a while. But Jesus, he had just given up his spirit. He seems like he's in control the whole time. These other ones aren't dead. And so they come and they break their legs so that they can no longer push up. A seemingly harmless detail. But let's keep reading. But one of the, jol- the soldiers pierced his side, Jesus' side, with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. Hmm. Then he saw, he who saw this is testified so that you may also believe. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. Verse 36, for these things happen that scripture might be fulfilled. This is the third time John says this in this section. It's a big deal to him. And two verses are highlighted. First, not one of his bones will be broken. And secondly, they will look on the one they pierce. What is John trying to get us to think of here? Well, probably the first thing that he's trying to get us to think of is the Passover lamb. In Exodus 12, the Passover lamb, which was prepared on this day, by the way, Um, The Passover lamb, which was being prepared, they they weren't allowed to break their legs according to the command of God. Exodus 12, 46. It's a strange detail, but showing that God is in control of this entire process, even down to the bones of Jesus hanging there on that cross. In the second verse, Zechariah 12, 10, a time which looked ahead to when God was going to deliver his people. And they looked on the one who they pierced. Interestingly enough, in the Hebrew, it's God who's being pierced. God being pierced. It's like God was there on the cross because Jesus is being claimed to be something more than just a man. He's more than just a man who was going to come and raise up an army and deliver God's people. He was more. Actually, we believe that he was both God and man. Being in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be held onto, but he emptied himself and he assumed the form of a human. That Jesus has always existed as the Son. But at a point in human history, at the right time, he came for a specific reason, for a specific hour, and this is that hour. This is that time in which God was going to do something amazing that didn't seem so amazing on the surface we see in the last part of the text, the burial of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, who we've seen before in the gospel accounts, comes and gets Jesus' body and, and cares for it in a beautiful way. But then we also see our friend Nicodemus from John chapter three, this interesting, reluctant religious leader who seems, I think, fairly genuinely curious about Jesus. And he came at night, John says in chapter three, and then here he's coming before the sun has set, which would be in the light. And this is an interesting, interesting text, but there has to be more than interesting hermeneutical tidbits. This isn't just an interesting story. 
Remember, John doesn't just care about the historical, physical reality of what's happening. He cares about something theological, not just what happened, but why it happened. So why did all this happen? What's John trying to say? What's going on here in the cross? I don't know about you, um, but as I've dwelled on the cross a lot this week and over the last couple of weeks, I've come to the realization and to my own shame um, that I and I think others can be bored of the cross. I don't know of a better way to put it. The, the cross has been a little bit relegated to, to jewelry, to tattoos, to artistry, and we come here and once a year we remember it and then life goes on. That when we, we read the story of the cross, that affections aren't stirred, that our, that our mind doesn't just race with thoughts, that we're not motivated to live in a different way. That's my confession. Pray it's not your story as well. But what I wanted to do for this next part is just help us to see the bigger picture, to help us see through what seemed like darkness. One of the most interesting things I found about John 19 is something that John didn't do. One of my favorite themes throughout the book of John is the theme of light and darkness day and night. And I don't know if in the other gospel accounts, they record that there was this unnatural darkness that comes over uh, the land as Jesus was dying. John, you're the darkness dude, the light dude. Why wouldn't you use that detail? I mean, they put it up on a T for you, crush that thing, let's go, do this. He doesn't use it. Why did he not use it? It was driving me crazy. I wonder if it's not for this reason. But John didn't use it because what he wanted to show is that though it may have seemed like darkness, though it may have seemed like Jesus' loss, though it may have seemed like something bad was happening, actually that's not what was happening at all. In John chapter one, the light came into the world, but darkness did not overcome it. What's happening in the cross may look like darkness, but actually what is really happening is the light overcoming the darkness. That's what's happening on the cross. And I wonder if that's not why John doesn't include that unique detail from the crucifixion account. Hear these truths about this story and let your affections be moved. Let your mind race just a little bit. All the things that the Jews tried to use to trap Jesus, all the things they used to mock Jesus, all their rejection only served for his vindication. All the mocking of Pilate and the Romans, all the pain and suffering they caused, the power and authority they thought they had, all the shame and humiliation that they thought they beat Jesus with was exactly what Jesus used to pay for their sins. In Jesus, the place of the skull was being overtaken by the life-giving presence of God. Even Pilate with his mocking sign when he intended for shame actually serves as a reminder that Jesus, the crucified king, has actually been made king of all nations, of Jews, of Romans, of Pilate, and of all people. What they intended for evil, God used for their own good. What was intended for condemnation, God used for Jesus' exaltation. What they intended for harm, God used for their healing. What, he, what they thought was an um, 
ending for Jesus, God used as a new beginning. God used their sin and turned it into the source of their righteousness. For he who knew no sin became sin so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. He took their murder and made it into their atonement. Jesus became thirsty on the cross in order to satisfy the eternal thirst of all the people in light of the cross. In John 7, he says that all who come to me will have a source of everlasting water, that they will never be thirsty again. It might be too much to say, but it's at least worth saying that as Jesus was pierced and as blood and water began to flow, we see this beautiful truth that as blood comes on us, we are cleansed. And as the water pours on us, we are made new as the Spirit comes and gives us resurrection life. Just as he received the sour wine from the jar of the Romans, so Jesus willingly received the cup of God's wrath. What seemed like Jesus hanging his head in shame as he took his final breath wasn't shame. Shame implies guilt, and he had no guilt. No, he was the spotless lamb, the sinless lamb, who came away to take the sins of the world. No, Jesus hung his head and gave up his spirit in death so that we could have life through his spirit. Just as Jesus' side was pierced and flowed with water and blood to the ground, so also will water and blood flow from Jesus onto all who believe in him. Jesus' friends, his disciples, thought he was a failure. Some thought he was a victim. His opponents thought he was a fool. His enemies thought he had lost. And yet what seemed like failure was actually the means of triumph. What seemed like their victory was actually under his authority and God's sovereignty. What seemed like foolishness was actually divine wisdom. What looked like a loss was actually the means of victory. Jesus' crucifixion was his exaltation as the king, not just of the Jews, but of all people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. Galatians 3.13 says that he became a curse so that we could be redeemed from the curse. What Jesus did was beautiful. It may have seemed like something else was going on, but actually light was overcoming the darkness. The upside down nature, the, the beauty of the cross is that sometimes things aren't quite what they seem. And therefore, when we look at the cross, we don't just see shame, we don't see humiliation, we don't just see pain or foolishness, but we see things like hope. We see things like God being to work through things like death. That's why people like Jesus' brother can say things like, consider it pure joy, my brothers, my sisters, when you face trials of various kinds. What I think the cross is begging for us to do what the rest of the New Testament seems to do with these narratives, is that the cross wasn't just some event that happened back then, but it's ever moving forward in the life of the world. John 19.35, John says that he witnessed this, that his testimony is true, and he tells you why so that you might believe. 
the challenge of the cross, first and foremost, is that you might believe in Jesus. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, you're here with somebody who loves you enough to tell you the truth of who he is. Their hope, John's hope, God's hope, is that you would see the cross, that you would see Jesus, that you would believe that he is the blessed Passover lamb who has fully paid for your sins. That at one time, Jesus died for all sins, past, present, and future. You included and it's his hope, it's our hope that you would put your faith in him. Put another way, we hope that you believe in Jesus, that he's the only one who can fix what's broken. He's the only one that can fix what's broken in this world and in your life. That you would be able to look at the cross and see through the darkness, see through what seems to be other people winning, see your life through that lens. You maybe feel physical pain. You maybe feel inner turmoil. You may look and see chaos, but there's something else going on. That death isn't the end of the story. That disease and decay wasn't how it was intended to be. That the disorder and the chaos of the world isn't how it's always going to be. And Jesus is the only one that can fix it all. But for those of us who believe that, who do believe that Jesus has fully paid for our sins, the cross beckons us to come and live a cross-shaped life. Paul says in Galatians 2.20 that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus says in Luke 9.23, I want you to take up your cross and follow me daily. Paul says in Romans 6 that if you've been baptized into those waters, that you've died to your old life, that your old life has been crucified. Just as he died when you go down into the water, so you die to your old life of sin. And you're raised up, no longer a slave to sin, but actually able to live for him, this new cross-shaped life. This cross-shaped life that looks like serving well. John chapter 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And then he says to them, you're not better than me. You're actually, you're like my servants and I'm your master. And if I wash your feet, so you should wash one another's feet. Part of the cross-shaped life looks like serving well. And John chapter 15 Jesus tries to tell his disciples that persecution's gonna come on them. Suffering's gonna come on them because of him, because of the testimony that they're gonna hold to because of him. And he says the same phrase, you're not better than me. I'm your master and if I suffered and died, guess what? You probably will too. Part of the cross-shaped life is suffering well. We serve well and we suffer well, no matter what comes, whether it is persecution and difficulty because of our faith, praise be to God that we're counted worthy of such an honor, whether it's just the grind of everyday life, the pain and loss of disease and death. The cross-shaped life looks like sacrificing everything. John chapter 12, starting in verse 23, says this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The cross-shaped life for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, means that we are willing to lose everything for him. That we're willing to go anywhere and do anything for the cause of Christ. That we live open-handed lives. Willing to share our time, our our talents, our energy, our, our belongings for those who need That's the cross-shaped life. That's the ever-moving-forward cross-shaped life. That we'd be the kind of people that serve well, that suffer well, that sacrifice everything so that other people in the world might come to believe that Jesus really is their only hope for sin. That's us. Our life looks a lot like the cross, or at least according to Paul and Jesus, it should. One of, the day, one of the ways we remind ourselves every week of that is through the Lord's Supper. In communion, we remind ourselves of our baptism where we were crucified to our old life of sin. We're reminded that Jesus was this perfect Passover lamb who spilled his blood, who put on flesh so that we could have a relationship with the Father that we could have a new family, that this church could exist. And so we take things like bread, we remember his body, and we eat well. And we take the cup, remembering his blood, and we drink well. Brothers and sisters, in light of Jesus' work on the cross. In the light of God's great love for you, let us stand and let us sing.